0: I'd like you to take a Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll look just at a couple of verses as I give an introduction to this book. Let me also say, I, uh, unrelated to this sermon, I have uh, for the past seven weeks been participating in an online course with Ravi Zacharias Ministries on apologetics. It's a core module, and they plan to begin offering lots, lots of electives. It was a trial thing. I was one of 160 People from around the world that began this a few months ago, and we're over halfway through now. But they have decided they're going to offer these core modules. One is going to be the middle of June. Another they're going to offer at the middle of July. If you have any interest at all in learning more for your own faith's sake of uh, difficult questions, especially on the problem of suffering and evil in the world today. Uh, I would highly recommend this course. It takes uh, a few hours a week, and the registration is open now. It's called RZIM Academy online. The course will cost you $200, uh, and I have benefited from it in many, many ways. Oz Guinness they gave the lecture, listened to yesterday, and he, on suffering and on pain. Uh, Oz Guinness was born as a missionary child in China, And he said uh, when he was just a a young boy, there was a famine that hit the province where they lived and over a million people died from that famine in 90 days, including his two brothers. And uh, the question of why me or why them, why not me, are things that we all live with. And we talked about how since 1900, it's the first time in human history that a person can live basically a a pain-free life due to anesthetics and so forth. And so as I, we sang that hymn, He Leadeth Me, if you know the background, you know the background of that hymn. That was written during the spiritual awakenings that took for, uh, place during the Civil War. And that was sung by many troops, especially Southern troops, who did not know if they would die the next day. And that's why the words of that, and when my time on earth is done, uh, he leadeth me, he leadeth me. Uh, the, and so the, the context of that is very, very powerful to know that in the hymn. But I highly recommend that, RZIM Academy. And I think the, the registration opened up the other day for the next week or so. Okay, First Peter uh, chapter 1. Listen to these words beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. Through verse 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So ends the reading of God's holy word. It's been seven years since I really looked at the book of First Peter. Um, and you have to know about the character of Peter. And what I want to do today is tell you about this man who wrote this letter. We won't look at the passage beginning next week and, Lord willing, through the summer. I want to bring a series of messages from this, this brief letter. Uh, But it's a man who failed, and that was the man, Peter. Do you ever experience failure? The key to it is how do you handle it. Failure is far more common than success. And well-known people who've done many good things have failed at great things in the past. You can pick up these books and read about great blunders from the past. Henry Ford forgot to put reverse in his first car. (laughs) Thomas Edison spent $2 million in those days On an invention which proved to be essentially worthless. So when we look at the Bible, we find second chances, third chances, fourth chances. We find biblical characters who made huge, huge, life-changing, life-destroying mistakes. Samson, David, Paul, Moses, Abraham... And the Scriptures nowhere sugarcoat their lives. The Scriptures show them as they were and how God's grace worked in their lives. It's all about God's grace, and so we can learn a lot from such people. One of the books I plan to use in the study of 1 Peter is this book by R.C. Sproul entitled, Be All the More Diligent to Make Your Calling and Election Sure. It's a commentary on First and Second Peter. By the way, a person came to our church for the first time today, a young woman, and she said, when you mentioned R.C. Sproul, I knew I was at home. She'd never been here before and has been living in another city. Anyway, Sproul begins his book, and in the preface he says this about 1 Peter. He says, imagine what it would be like to receive a letter from someone who was a personal friend of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Beyond that, imagine receiving two letters from such a person. That's exactly what we have in the New Testament correspondence known as First and Second Peter. A letter from a man such as this is a treasure for the church, a treasure for the church. So to understand this treasure, this letter, these letters of first and Second Peter, we need to know the author. Sometimes he was called Cephas, sometimes he was called Simon. Most often he was simply called Peter. So what I want to do the next few minutes is reacquaint you or acquaint you for the first time with the writer of this letter, this man named Peter. And I want to do so by looking at five scenes from the Bible where he is introduced. Many of the scenes about Peter, they're not in his letter. They are in the Gospels and primarily in the Gospel of Mark. And the reason is simple. Peter was Mark's primary source. Much of what Mark wrote down in the Gospel of Mark came from Peter, as though he's sitting there interviewing Peter. And therefore, a number of accounts that include Peter show some of the things that don't portray Peter in a real positive light. They're almost close to being self-effacing at times. It's as though Peter said, I want you to write it just like this. This is what happened. This is what I did. And this is what I said. So we get our first glimpse of Peter in the Gospel of Mark. And the the first glimpse is that he and his brother Andrew are fishing on the Sea of Galilee. They are partners in a fishing business with two other men, James and John. And all of this changes. Their future in this business changes in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus calls them. It says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net Into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now, it is not to be assumed that Jesus is a complete stranger walking by and says, Follow me, and they just do so with no knowledge of who this man is. We know from studying the Gospels that Jesus' ministry lasted about three and a half years. From the time he began his public ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and he began preaching. But what many people fail to realize is that it was about a year into that ministry before he called his 12 disciples to follow him. They were with him the better part of two years, a little bit more than that. But they had been hearing him uh, either firsthand or through others for uh, up to a year. So they knew who Jesus was. Several of the disciples were disciples of John the Baptist. So there was, this was not a total stranger coming up and saying, follow me. But we see this call here in Mark chapter 1, and Peter follows. Peter was a fisherman. I like this, because he would have been a common person. Most of us would have said, hey, I like this guy. I wouldn't mind sitting down and talking with this fellow. He wasn't highly educated. He was literate. He could carry on the the business of commerce, the fishing business. He could write. Uh, But he wasn't wealthy. He wasn't among the elite of the day, removed from from normal problems. Uh, When he's called by Jesus, there appears to be no hesitation, no scrambling to secure possessions, no qualifications that had to be met before he would follow. He was willing. He was teachable. How many of us would walk away from a business, from a livelihood, in order to follow Jesus. Well, I hope we can respect the fact that he did. He was decisive. It shows us he could make up his mind and take action. We know he was a Galilean. They had, they had a reputation of being emotional, of being impulsive, of being uh, adventurous, loyal to the end. We see that in Peter's life from what happens here in the Gospels and later So early in the public ministry of Jesus, Peter becomes one of the 12 disciples, that group of 12 with whom Jesus would pour his life into them, equipping them, training them, teaching them to carry out the ministry of the expansion of the kingdom of God after the resurrection. We learn something else from Mark chapter 1, and this slips by unnoticed by some people. At the end of Mark 1, it says, As soon as they left the synagogue... They went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. What does that tell us about Peter? Whose mother-in-law? His. He was married. Peter was married. That's why in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, Peter. Peter was married. He was a family man. He probably had children. And so Paul is saying that as an apostle, didn't he have a right to marry and bring the wife along on the ministry, just as Peter was doing? Years ago, when the Iron Curtain fell in Eastern Europe, Many of us went on short-term trips into the countries of Eastern Europe, and uh, it was a very, very popular thing to do very quickly, and uh, uh, I went along with several other pastors. And in talking about a subsequent trip, some of the leaders over there said, we'd like for you to come back, but we want you to bring your wives because all the people here are seeing are these Americans, especially pastors, and they don't see them in a family context. We're trying to teach them about marriage and about family, and we need you to do that, or else it's kind of sends. It doesn't send a full picture, a full message. I thought that was pretty wise to do that. We tend to think of those disciples as though they had no family obligations, right? Uh, it's not an excuse. Marriage is not an excuse not to serve the Lord. Being a father or or mother or having kids or so forth is not an excuse to say, well, if I just if it was just me. And I didn't have these other obligations. Boy, I could have done like Peter and the other. He had those obligations too. Okay, that's scene number one, his calling. Scene number two is the leadership to which he rises. Leaders rise in any group, formally or informally, whether it's a team or a class or or wherever. Almost after a few minutes, you can pick the leaders out of a group. Well, Peter rises to a position of leadership. In Matthew chapter 10, it lists the disciples of Jesus. It says, These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and so forth. When Matthew says these are the names, first, Simon, the word first there can mean not only first in order, but it also means chief, first in prominence. So Peter was a leader among the disciples. He was bold enough to ask questions in that role. And he was persistent enough to insist on explanations. In Matthew 18, it said, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother, my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times. Peter not only asked questions of Jesus, he fielded them of of others from outside the group. He was a spokesman for the disciples. In Matthew 17, it said, And Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, and the collectors of the two dratma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Why did they come to Peter? He was obviously the leader. He was the spokesman. Although he died years ago, his writings on prayer and revival influenced many of us. Leonard Ravenhill, he tells about a group of tourists in Europe, Who were on a walking tour and they came to a very picturesque village. And one of them walked up to an old man sitting by a fence and, in a patronizing kind of way, said, Were any great men born in this village? To which the man replied, Nope, only babies. (laughs) Leadership is developed, it's not born, it's a person like Peter developed into a leader. So we see his calling, we see his leadership. Now scene three, we see his transparency and his honesty. He often asks the penetrating questions that maybe others were thinking about. In Matthew 16, we have Jesus, this well-known passage. When Jesus, it says, when it came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "'Who do people say the Son of Man is?' And they replied, "'Some say John the Baptist.'" Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Jesus speaks to them as a group and says, who do you say that I am, it's a plural in the original language. The southern version, who do y'all say that I am? And Peter steps forth and answers, It's a result of his faith. And Jesus, because of his answer, blesses him and changes his name from Simon to Peter, meaning rock. So he was not afraid to express himself. Perhaps that's why he had the dubious role of being the most rebuked of Jesus' disciples. We think of his mistakes. Uh, When Jesus walked on the water in a storm, Peter replied, It tells us, tell me to come to you. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me! Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why do you doubt he was willing, he was willing to take a risk? How many of us would have done that? Uh, years ago as a college student I was at the University of Alabama and I was in the basketball arena, the Coliseum at that time which I just assume has been torn down and rebuilt larger these days but I remember sitting at a basketball game and there was the bulletin for the game and in the back I opened it up and there was a page that had the statistics on that Coliseum, on that building and I began reading and I saw among the other stats, most points scored in one game Pistol Pete Maravich Right below that, most shots taken in one game. (laughs) Pistol beat Maravich and gave the date uh, of, of both of those events, the same game. More shots taken. He was willing to risk missing in order to score. Peter was willing to take a risk. Peter had courage. Bill Bright used to say that courage is not the absence of fear, but it's doing what you know is right in spite of your fear. Or I could refer to the great theologian John Wayne, who said courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway. So if you're paralyzed by fear, remember Peter. Remember the example of Peter. He was willing to take a risk. That's the third scene. Now the fourth scene, out of five if you're keeping count, is his failure. Uh, Many of us here are in journey groups. For the past six years or so, we have these We have these groups, small groups with men with men, women with women, and the youth use these. And there's a curriculum that goes over a three-year time, and it's got lots of different assignments and lessons. One of the assignments, one of the early assignments, is to teach a person to share their testimony of how they came to know Christ in about a uh, five-minute testimony. And a template to do that, they ask each of us, and there are eight of us in the group I lead, there to take a graph, a page, and graph out your spiritual journey. Um, going back to whenever, childhood, and of when you've been very interested in God and when not interested in God, when you came to know Christ, all that kind of thing. So you kind of graph it out. And then the, when we meet, someone to, to go through and explain, uh, describe the graph to the fellows by telling about our life. Well, there's no doubt if Peter was in one of our groups and we were to give him one of those graphs, the chart would hit rock bottom when he denied Christ on the night of Jesus' arrest. Without a doubt, that would have happened. So you know the story. There at the, the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, when he... When he says that one of you is going to betray me, speaking of Judas. And then Peter boastfully says everybody else may forsake you, betray you, but not me. And Jesus says before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And Peter's just aghast at the very notion since he thinks that's impossible. Well, you know what happens. Mark 14 tells us, while Peter was below in the courtyard, this is after Jesus was arrested, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the uh, entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And the final phrase there is, And he broke down and wept. Now, in a crowd this size, I can imagine some of you, some of us here have committed sins, which you probably are convinced have rendered you useless to God. Well, have you denied Jesus publicly as Peter did? What might we predict would happen after such a crash like this for Peter? Remorse? Discouragement, despair, throwing in the towel. Can never show my face again, perhaps he was thinking. Failure so devastating, you think you're finished? Well, sometimes it helps to see things from the other side. Although his baseball career ended around 2007 and it ended in controversy with accusations of steroid use and a congressional hearing, of which he was ultimately found not guilty, Roger Clemens had a phenomenal major league pitching career for almost 20 years. In 1985, as he was beginning his major league career, he started his first All-Star game. He was a pitcher for the Red Sox back in those days, and in the second inning of the All-Star game, Clemens came up to bat now, that, if you know baseball, you know that would be odd because in the American League, which Clemens was in, uh, he had not batted for years before that, really, because they have the designated hitter rule where the pitcher doesn't have to bat since they're normally so sorry at batting that they get a good batter then. But in the All-Star game, he comes up to bat. And it's the first time, like I said, he batted in years. And on the mound is the other great pitcher, Dwight Gooden. And the first pitch is a screamer, fastball, right down the middle, about 100 miles an hour. Wham! Clemens swings, nothing but air. And stunned, he steps out of the batter's box, and he turns around and looks at catcher Gary Carter and says, Wow, let me ask you something. Is that what my pitches look like? against folks that are batting against me? And Gary Carter says, you betcha, they look just like that. Well, Clemens steps back in the batter's box, two more pitches, two more swings and misses, he's out of there. But that day he pitched at least those three scoreless innings, and he later said that batting experience had an incredible effect on his life when he realized how overpowering a good fastball is, and it made him bold. And he said, it changed my view of pitching, and I had confidence from then on like I never had before. See, sometimes we forget what we have going for us, especially when we've lost it. And it may mean losing it momentarily and then getting it back. Well, now Peter gets it back, and that's the fifth scene. This is the restoration to ministry. This is the last, final scene. The beginning of his restoration is hinted at at the resurrection site when the angel told the women who had come to anoint Jesus' body in the tomb, tell his disciples and Peter, two little words. Great news, though, was coming from those two little words. But the actual turnaround Happens in the last chapter of John, in chapter twenty-one. We looked at this here from a different light just a few weeks ago. But in Acts, I mean, in John chapter twenty-one, uh, Peter and four of the other disciples go fishing, and they've been fishing all night, and they have caught nothing. And it says in John 21, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. So he swims to the shore, gets there before the other disciples are in the boat. He finds breakfast waiting for him. Jesus has prepared the breakfast. They gathered around. If you know the story, three times Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me? And he uh, provides him an opportunity to reconfirm his love for Christ three times, just as he had denied him three times. And he tells him, Jesus says to him, Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. In other words, to make a long story short, he is reestablishing Peter's role of leadership in his kingdom. He is reestablishing his role of being a shepherd to other people. Now, what sustains us in failure? Okay, here's the psychology of why Christians want to throw the towel in. We know, we Protestants especially know, that we're saved by grace through faith alone. We can't work for it, we can't earn it, it's not by our own efforts. Any person with any church background, a little bit of Bible, knows that. The doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. That I can't work for I can't earn it. But often we get confused after that point and say, all of this, to be right with God, justification, forgiveness, is by grace, is free, I can't earn it. But then we think sanctification from that point on until heaven, it's all my effort. Grace was something good then, but grace isn't something I need each day. Want to bet? Or do you wonder about that? (laughs) Do you need grace all the time? Of course. If I have the mentality that, well, once I'm saved, it's all up to me. It's all up to I've got to succeed. I've got to do right. And if I fail, if my failures sink me, what am I depending on? I'm not depending on God's grace at that point. Now I'm back to depending on my own performance. That's how it can devastate us. If our failures, if our sins, and not all failures are sins, but all sins are failures, but if when we really blow it, if it devastates us to where I'm just, oh, I'll never get over this. How how could God ever even smile on me again? You know, God, that's not an understanding of grace. That is a misunderstanding of grace. So what happened here? Why was Peter able to recover? Why was Peter, in Acts chapter 1, the one who took the lead in choosing the disciple to take Judas's place? It's in Acts chapter 2, Peter's the spokesman for the first outreach at Pentecost when 3,000 plus are saved. In Acts chapter 3, it's Peter who, with John, healed a lame man at the synagogue. In Acts chapter 4, it's Peter who defies the Sanhedrin, refusing to be silent about Jesus, even when they were threatened. In Acts chapter 5, it's Peter who presides over the grim task of dealing with Ananias and Sapphira. And in Acts chapter 8, it's Peter who deals decisively with with a deceitful man named Simon the Magician. And it's Peter who reaches out to Cornelius, a Gentile, after God reveals to him that the gospel will go forth to all people universally. This is the man who God uses to pen these two letters known as First and 2 Peter. He was a man who could identify with failure, and he could understand God's grace to restore. Winston Churchill said, There comes a special moment in everyone's life, a moment for which that person was born. That special opportunity, when he seizes it, will fulfill his mission a mission for which he is uniquely qualified. In that moment, he finds greatness. It is his finest hour. It is my opinion, only my opinion, that Peter's finest hour happened on Pentecost. 3,000-plus people are saved after one sermon, and this is just weeks, this is just weeks after Peter had denied Christ. I would say that was Peter's finest hour. So let me leave you with one last lesson from Peter's model. Failure in the past does not nullify effectiveness for the future. What a loss it would have been if Peter had let remorse for his own sin do him in. What if he had focused all of his emotions on that event rather than seeing the bigger picture That God was not finished with him yet. God never wastes tests. That had been a test for Peter. And he failed that test. But that was just one. The very trial you are now in may be the beginning of a ministry in the future. So I want to leave you reminding you of what the Bible says about past sins repented of. Of course we're only made right with God because of the righteousness of Christ. The bad news is we are all spiritually dead. We are separated from God, and God must punish our sin, and the punishment is death. But God sent one, the Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus, who lived a perfect life. And on the cross, God put my sin on him and punished him in my place. And now, to be right with God, I receive that gift, that punishment that he took, and his righteousness is imputed to me. Remember these verses. Isaiah 1, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. In Isaiah 44, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud. Your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. In Psalm 103, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Depend on it. Trust in it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your forgiveness is full, and it is complete, and it's not partial. And we thank you that you look at us as sinners, and you, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you demonstrate your own love for us by sending Christ. May he be our only hope, our trust, our foundation. In his name we pray. Amen.